Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I think we should start by having you introduce yourselves and your company and what you do. So, okay. Two um, of you. <laughs> yeah, there's two of us. So um, my name's Tim Bickmore. I'm a co-founder and financial advisor at LBW Wealth Management. I'm here with uh, our portfolio manager, Nathaniel Leach. Uh, at LBW, we provide really three core services, uh, financial, uh, financial planning, estate planning, and value-based investment management. Uh, we are an independent and registered investment advisor, which is quite unique for the space and is really the reason what makes us different is um, our investment management piece. Because what we do is we're actually looking at individual companies. Um, and that is actually Nathaniel's job. That's what he does on a day-to-day basis, 24-7. Sometimes his wife gets mad at him because on the weekends or at nights, he is sitting down and reading SEC documents um, to see what the intrinsic value Bad of time reading. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, and that's, you know, and that's really his main um, position inside the company, which he does other things as well. Um, and again, it makes us unique because we're doing our own in-house research. So a lot, of, not all of our portfolios are strictly our research, but um, I'd say a decent amount is, um, mm-hmm. which is, is is exciting. And so Nathaniel's here, and he can probably introduce himself a little better than I can. But uh, my name is Nathaniel Leach. As Tim said, I am the portfolio manager for LBW Wealth Management. Uh, a little background about myself: I. Went to college at Kalamazoo College, Michigan, got a bachelor's in history. Uh, I don't have any formal business teaching aside from economics or business courses within college or high school and and also thereafter sometimes. Um, And we actually look on that as a a strength for myself because, uh, as our other partner, Dan, would tell you, he received a bachelor's in finance from uh, UW-Whitewater. And he, he'll be happy to tell you about that. He, he wasn't taught anything mm-hmm. about value investing or Warren Buffett or, or any of those great value investors out there. So uh, we view it as a strength for ourselves. I'm self-taught. That's not that I'm not trying to say that that's, that's the way to go or any, by any means. But uh, I've been investing since I was 15 with my own money. Mm-hmm. So I do have I've, – I've been in and out. I, I didn't immediately – tack on to value investing, but uh, I did slowly learn it as I went. And really the best way to do so is to invest with your own skin in the game. Right. Yep. So so um, for our listeners, um, what what do you mean when you say value investing? That's an excellent question. Yeah. Uh, we do come across that a lot. Um, so value investing throughout the press has been associated with uh, big investors like Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway. And they associate that with uh, researching the fundamentals of companies, like what are their earnings, what are their returns on invested capital, uh, what are their profit margins, uh, not only the quantitative but also the qualitative about the company. And And then value investors are known for investing or buying a company at a discount to what we what we call its intrinsic value. That is, what do we estimate its uh, what is the value of the company based upon the present value of its future cash flows? Mm-hmm. So we we look at 
we, we do our research, we invest in, the, we look at those fundamentals, quantitative, qualitative, qualitative investment uh, based upon share, uh, the, the management, what, the, what are their capital allocation skills, and are they out, are they looking out for their shareholders? Mm-hmm. I, and I think too, and from the general public, we're more of a bottoms up approach. That's what somebody would may call it, right? So we're digging from a micro standpoint. So we're looking at the company and then moving our <coughs> way up. Mm-hmm. Where sometimes you have an approach which is called a top-down approach, where people may take in um, in consideration macroeconomic factors mm-hmm. when they're looking at investing. We take kind of the opposite approach. And like Nathaniel said, the reason why we like to tell people we're investors is Nathaniel will always say we're looking for risk versus reward. Mm-hmm. So we may see an equity that might be undervalued. We may buy. He may see a bond. So we're looking at the company's structure, and we want to make sure that we're investing in something that has a good risk reward. Um, I guess, com- composition. Sure. Um, and so we're not just looking at certain sectors. We're really looking all over the place. And as we'll probably get into the circle of competence, mm-hmm. right, where do we want to stick ourselves into? Because the market is large. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, you can't know everything. Mm-hmm. So so when, when you hear um, people like Warren Buffett talk about Occasionally, he'll talk about why um, Berkshire Hathaway invested in something. And he often will say things about, well, I really like the guy running the company. <laughs> so yeah. wh- uh, what do you think about that? I think that's an v- extreme oversimplification. Uh, uh, it's a very uh, succinct sum- summation of his due diligence about that person running the company. And he just says, I think I really like the person running this. Because in reality, he has done his due diligence. Uh, for example, um, oh, I should do a full disclosure just for our yeah. verification. Yeah, yeah, sure. Full disclosure, my partners and or clients own some of the securities that may be mentioned in this podcast. We are not making any recommendation to buy or sell. These are our opinions only. LBW may transact and mention securities or change our opinion at any time without further notification. Nathaniel's also our compliance officer. He's a compliance officer, <laughs> and so you do have now. a lawyer involved <laughs> oh, lurking in the background, <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, Buffett decided to invest in IBM back mm-hmm. in 2010, but he didn't just pull the trigger because he felt like it. He had been reading those annual reports for the last 40 to 50 years right. and then keeping track of what was been going on in the company based on what was disclosed. And it was only in 2010, after a period, uh, a decade or two prior, that they had initiated a plan saying, listen, for the next five years, this is what we're going to do. Mm. And they did it. So he, he may have said at the time that he really liked management, but it wasn't just uh, that he liked management because they were nice people, maybe. It was because that they had instituted a plan, a shareholder creation plan, and they moved forward with it, and they did it. Right. And I think that that um, that is a great example of the importance for entrepreneurs when you're talking about raising money with anybody, whether it's a bank or an investor or anybody else who's looking at you. They, they care a lot about whether you do what you say you're going to do. Absolutely. And in startups that I work with, sometimes they're losing money for a couple of years. And I tell people that um, that's not a problem if you told people you're going to be losing money, right? Then they made their decision, eyes wide open, new companies do lose money. Setting yeah. expectations, very important. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, delivering on plan is right. really important, right? So right. planned losses of money are different than, oh, shit, 
losses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you broke the way there on the swearing. Oh yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> now we feel more Yeah, now you feel more comfortable, <laughs> right? Well, Nathan and I talk about quite a bit from a private equity standpoint, you know, um, looking at companies that aren't public and especially startups is the key man, right? That's that key man mm-hmm. risk. You really have to have somebody that can really drive that business forward. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, they're going to be losing money. Can they implement the process? They are kind of the person that's going to drive that value of the business. Sure. Um, so for us to come in, if we were to look at a private company and to mm-hmm. buy that, you know, we would really heavily weigh out what are the qualitative factors of that manager and what mm-hmm. can they do? Mm-hmm. Or who do they have for a succession plan potentially to bring in? Um, because usually when you get into those smaller startups, they're a large reason why they succeed or fail. Right. And do you guys do any investing in individual companies or that are not publicly traded? Is that something that your fund does? Or? It's something that we talk about on a daily basis. Oh, uh, but unfortunately, yeah. we don't have the means to do so today. But it right. is definitely something that we're talking about maybe 10, 20 years down mm-hmm. the road. Definitely, mm-hmm. we would like to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you'd be more like a private equity fund then, or potentially? or Possibly, yeah. yeah. yeah that's uh, one not, option. Uh, when we think of private equity we, equity, we think that most private equity is typically has lockup terms. Mm-hmm. So after a period of, say, five to 10 years, they're then forced to uh, Liquidate, capital. right. right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and that's not necessarily what we... We do want to do private equity per se, but we don't mm-hmm. want to do it with lockup periods. We want to do it with uh, what's termed permanent, ca- permanent capital. We mm-hmm. want to have permanent funds that we can choose to invest how we please. And mm-hmm. we want to buy companies not to just spin out after five to ten years, but to, to hold on for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, I think. One of the things that's difficult in food is we don't see the hockey stick, you know, return <laughs> yep. sales growth and returns mm-hmm. um, typically. And um, and so the private equity does get involved, um, but it, but it's hard. It, they're, they're unique places where a unique company has an opportunity like that, and they're not long-hold investors, right? right? So in Food Man, you make a lot of money, but it's 5%, you know, over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Wisconsin, we have a lot of companies that, you know, that are big national brands that have been in a family for two, three generations. So, I mean, talk about long hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because well, we, <clears throat> we like to talk about is it's it's the, what kind of free cash flow, right? So, I mean, if you're going to go back to the Berkshire, um, Berkshire type of model, what he's done is he's created a cash flow generation machine where mm-hmm. then he can use those funds to then invest in other companies. Um, and so I guess, and Nathaniel can correct me on this, we're not necessarily looking for those type of returns where the company is going to obviously going to grow, but it's that consistency. And if they do have decent <coughs> cash flow, what can we then do to reinvest that cash flow? Do we want to put it back into the business or do we want to use it to then invest in other businesses mm-hmm. to then have that compounding effect? So in a sense, when people are looking for that hockey stick, to us that's just short term and then they're going to get out at a certain point. We're looking f- – we have a larger picture to it. You know, right. It's not just one company. It's multiple. Um, and how do we go forward with that? Right, right. So you can still make money on slow-growth companies. Mm-hmm. It's just how you look at it. Mm-hmm. That's really our, our greatest advantage. That w- One of the greatest advantages that we have, I've, we feel, uh, against our competition <coughs> is our in, in long-term investment horizon. Mm-hmm. We are willing to invest – uh, at, for something that's ten years out, mm-hmm. uh, if may, maybe even longer, depending upon if the company is a compounder, so to speak, they they they're taking their earnings mm-hmm. and they're reinvesting them back into the company at high rates of return. Mm-hmm. That would be the 
the optimal investment for us. Sure, sure. Well, it could be that food would be good for you then, because right. we, they are they are these companies once they once they get solidified, right? They mm-hmm. they can have those characteristics. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, uh, so we talked about. Pl- Ability to execute on plan and 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 leadership. Um, but what else do you look for in a robust, investable business model? And I, I ask that because I work with so many startups, and and entrepreneurial people tend to think about products, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm really excited about my mm-hmm. product because I've got the best gluten free whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really not what people invest in, and that's so. Tr- it's such a. Um, it's such a change in the way people need to think, yeah. right? So much to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, much. I don't to want say. to talk too this fast. This is what I'm he reads at night, and his <laughs> yeah, wife gets, gets upset about. I'm this is what gets Nathaniel excited. Then. This gets Nathaniel excited. <laughs> so before we, we address that question, I'd like to backtrack and say sure. that the how we invest we utilize what what I like to call our investment framework mm-hmm. or or our investment philosophy and it's it's a, just really a core framework that can be applied to that question that she stated mm-hmm. uh, so we utilize four filters the first filter is do i or the investor understand what the company does so a lot of people can say that they understand for example what Coca-Cola does, Mm -hmm. but do they really understand what goes into making Coca-Cola what it is today? I don't think that they do. They may think, oh, the brand is what what sets it apart against Pepsi-Cola, for example. But in in reality, it's actually their distribution network that is the the game changer for them. Mm -hmm. So do I understand how a company makes money? Right. And to me, that's a great Example of a business model attribute, right? Right. How you distribute as opposed to the recipe. Exactly. Mm -hmm. There's so many factors that I can go back to Mm -hmm. about what goes into that question. Right. The the second filter is, does the company, most companies that we invest in, does the company have a sustainable competitive advantage? Mm -hmm. So how do they differentiate themselves against their competitors? Is there a secular change within the market that they are on top of mm-hmm. or that they're fighting against? Does it have a moat that cannot be breached, mm-hmm. or at least for a very long period of time that cannot be breached or slowly withers away? The third filter is then management. Does the, has management shown that they are great capital allocators? Mm-hmm. So. Do they take those profits and then they have a number of choices? Do they reinvest the profits back into the business? Are there high returns for those reinvestment possibilities? If not, then they typically can move to dividends back to shareholders. Or if the shares of their company are selling at a price that they deem to be undervalued, they could repurchase their shares. And then they can also issue and pay down debt as well. So... If that if the company then passes that filter, that's when we move on to the fourth and final filter, which we deem to be the most important, which is, is the company selling for a price that is, it is selling at a discount to its intrinsic value? Does it have what uh, was termed by the founder of what we term value investing, Benjamin Graham, uh, does it have a margin of safety? Or do we have mm-hmm. a margin of safety that helps protect us as the investor against uh, perhaps a macro secular change that we that we don't see coming, mm-hmm. uh, any 
any mistakes in our calculations with regards to the quantitative, as well as one could argue the qualitative aspects of the company like management. Do we like management, but Mm -hmm. the management turn around and screw us? Mm -hmm. So if it passes those four filters, that's when we, that's after all that's been said, that's when we decide, do we want to invest in a company? Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, that really falls into kind of the first and the second filters. Mm -hmm. So what to look for, and so I don't personally don't know much about uh, local food companies within Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the, the economics that can affect them. But I can use this framework to start digging into the weeds. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that, that we look at, I, I created a spreadsheet that uh, if you input certain met, uh, 10 years worth of statements, uh, income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, then goes down to the nitty-gritty on certain things that I look at. So going off the top of my head, we could look at what are the operating margins of the company. So Mm -hmm. what is an operating margin? It's the operating profit divided by the revenues of the company. But then going one step further, what is the gross profit margin of the company? Mm -hmm. So let's go start at the top of the income statement. If you look at the revenues, if you then subtract the cost of goods sold, that's where you get your gross profit. That's what it costs to manufacture and sell those products that you sold in, let's say, your, your fiscal year. Uh, so one of the things I find interesting in food is that that <clears throat> number is probably from a man, from a operating management perspective, the most important number, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, and people don't realize that, and people who invest in food companies are starting to get much more sophisticated about this, and they look for certain characteristics, right, mm-hmm. and that number. Because if you don't have enough gross margin contribution after that number, you can't pay for all the promotion and advertising and brand building that you need to do in food to have a successful company. Exactly. And I can imagine it's quite a balancing act for food companies because their gross margins are typically, there's a lot that goes into manufacturing the product. So as a result, they then have to balance their gross profit margin versus their operating margin. So their operating margin, so if you take the gross profit and then you subtract what is called the selling general and administrative, the SGNA mm-hmm. expensive, uh, which include marketing, as you said, that's the operating profit margin. So th- they have to balance their selling costs, their, their general and administrative costs, the, the people that they hire on, their marketing costs. They have to balance all that out versus their gross profit margin to get to their operating profit margin. Uh, so operating profit margin is useful in, uh, in looking at other companies within your, uh, your circle, so to speak. Um, because that's where you can then drill down, because that's the, the ultimate bottom number before interest, expense, and taxes are taken into account. And because those are can be extremely variable, mm-hmm. then that's why we, we focus on operating profit margin. It's after the operating profit margin that that's where things get dicey. So in our line of work, typically where we invest, that's where we can then look at publicly traded companies and go beyond the operating profit mm-hmm. margin because then we focus on net income. But net income really is a building block, we feel, to the ultimate number, as Tim said, free cash flow. Mm-hmm. Free cash flow is a number that can be, once you get down to where the cash is going, mm-hmm. that's the ultimate, uh, where is the money going, so to speak, and how much money does the company make to then be either reinvested back in the company, dividends, share back, uh, buybacks, mm-hmm. as I said earlier. So 
we look at net income, and then what is factored into that is any changes in working capital and adding back any depreciation and amortization because those are non-cash charges. However, those can be perceived to be real costs to the business because I can imagine imagine in uh, food companies that they exhibit high depreciation because they their capital do. expenditures, they have to maintain the machinery, mm-hmm. the big machines that, that are necessary to mm-hmm. create their product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there, there can be a lot of depreciation mm-hmm. in a uh, in a um, manufacturing food company that actually manufactures for mm-hmm. themselves, yeah. There, there's also, um, you know, this dynamic that these are earlier stage companies than you typically would be evaluating, right? So, mm-hmm. so the, that that tension that you talked about with operating income and trying to balance all mm-hmm. of that. So, um, so because there's big economies of scale in food production too, and everything from labels to machinery, everything there's economies of scale, right? Um, I tell people you want to get up that curve as fast as you possibly can, and that's p- part of the reason why food companies, early stage food companies, lose money, mm-hmm. right? Because you got to promote to get up the curve here. Um, mm. Yeah. So to get your economies of scale, so your gross margin can get higher. So you can, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's kind of a roller coaster for these young food companies. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So wh- I, I remember um, y- you guys, um, when I do work with Slow Money, we were, we were talking about a fund design and y- you guys found this wonderful company for me called Naked Wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were telling me about Naked Wine and you said, I really like <sighs> this company because they both, um, they're using crowdsourcing to raise money into a it's sort of a fund, but then it was also a marketing company. And when I left, I thought, these guys understand business models, right? So what was it about that Naked Wine that you liked? From a, Actually, from an investment standpoint, it's a kind of oddball. We kind of saw their business model as like an insurance company's float, which had appeal to me because that's uh, akin to how Warren Buffett built up his business was insurance float. So he would write up policies and then he would take the money that he got from the premiums, and then he would invest it. And as he got bigger, he would write these policies on uh, on reinsurance, for example, or catastrophe insurance. And as a result, he would get these bigger premiums, and they would be out 10 to 20 years. Right. And then he would be able to reinvest those funds, and then he just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. So from the perspective of Naked Wine, the way that their business model works is that they take money from their their members, so to speak. So And the, it's crowdsourced, right? Is it is it crowdsourced, or are they members? It, they're members. Okay. But you can look at it as crowdsourcing in a form because they are basically taking these – these members' funds that mm-hmm. they're in, they they are required to put in a minimum monthly amount. Okay, and then Naked Wines chooses where that money is invested in. Mm-hmm. So Naked Wines does the due diligence to then uh, find up and coming winemakers mm-hmm. that need funding mm-hmm. to create their product. So. Naked Wines invests in those companies and then turns around mm-hmm. and markets and sells those wines on their platform to those members. Mm -hmm. So the members can then go on to Naked Wines' website, look at the wines that are produced typically exclusively through the Naked Wines platform, Mm -hmm. and then choose 
however many bottles they want at any time. In the meantime, that money, that float, could be utilized however Naked Wine sees fit. It's typically written in the contracts that they that the members sign up. They, they sign a disclaimer and so on and so forth when they sign up to the company. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of appeal. Like if I was in charge of that, I could... I could really go to town on where that money goes. Mm-hmm. But that's not Naked Wine's business model, really. Right. They're choosing to do the due diligence for the members, mm-hmm. and then they're quickly turning around and selling mm-hmm. those wines. Back to the members. Right. And some, and a lot of times exclusively. Right. Yeah. So how did they get around SEC regulations? About I mean, do you have to be an accredited investor to invest in how does that work? Because nope. is it like a member association or something? Nope. nope. Uh, so they were actually started in the UK. Oh, So okay. they didn't have to deal with that, the SEC initially. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if there's any SEC fines for the company because they they took on these members. Mm-hmm. And there really isn't any SEC regulation they have to deal with because it's just like... It's a, almost like a private equity fund or something, right? Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Legally. Yeah. So, I'm always I'm always sensitive to that because, you know, you don't want, like, you had to read your disclosure, right? Is that weird? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, the, the SEC stuff in the United States is sort of frustrating in this regard. But what I really liked about this model that you suggested was that that marketing piece um because because in the food business it isn't you know raising money to grow your business is just one part of the equation you got to actually sell the stuff right mm-hmm. and and so naked wine is kind of protecting the members because it also sells back to the members, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And then Naked Wines does take care of the marketing spend on behalf of the winemakers that they have invested in. So right. it helps them out. Right. So when the, the economics that were described by the, the founder and entrepreneur of this, this guy uh, actually started working with uh, Richard Branson mm-hmm. of Virgin mm-hmm. and uh, got it worked his way up and then eventually started his own company. And it, it's really quite interesting how... So they sell these wines that typically in retail stores in the U.K. would have sold maybe for 100 pounds, let's say. Mm-hmm. But That's a lot of money, by the way. Oh, yeah. A 100-pound bottle of wine is what in dollars? Probably 150 200 I would say so, yeah, yeah. $130, 150 mm-hmm. So what, their business, what Naked Wine's business model did was they then cut out a big portion of that cost to the consumer because of their business model, because mm-hmm. they're going to these winemakers and saying, listen, I'll take out your marketing spend. Mm-hmm. I'll take out your um, distributor, startup funds, mm-hmm. distribution. I'll take that all out of the equation. And in return, you're going to sell me your wine mm-hmm. at these low, low prices. And then we're going to turn around and sell your wine for you, distribute it for you to these consumers. So not um, what the genius of that model was that Naked Wines was saying, listen, guys, we're going to take a big chunk of your expenses out of the equation. Mm-hmm. So they not only benefited the wine manufacturers, but in turn, they also benefited their members, their consumers. Mm-hmm. So they, they took care of both sides of the equation, right. which is a very powerful compounding effect. Right. And the other the other thing I like about that is um, wine is like a, a lot of high-end food. I don't, I'm sure some of those wines were aged. Um and it's very expensive for a uh, winery to make those products because they have to hold them for so long. Right. And so 
Naked Wine is also <coughs> acting as a financier, as a source of capital for these companies. And um, so they kind of actually, it's the three-legged stool, right? They're they're helping the consumers and the wineries with just having a market and taking out the distributor, but also in financing probably yeah. their inventory. So they're aging. Yeah, I, I love that model because I feel like the world of food, we really need business model innovation right mm-hmm. now. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday um, in a, who's, a, who's a food company in a category that's in what they would call the center of the store. So it's a grocery item. Mm-hmm. And in their category, um, you know, the, the retailer, this was a Whole Foods region, had gone from um, 30 brands to three. They just decided we're not doing all this anymore. And we got rid of all of them. So if you are the 27, one of the 27, which you typically are if you're a little company, Mm. and Whole Foods has its own brand, right, 365, so I bet they didn't take that one out. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. So it's it's a, there's a incredible disruptive thing going on right now in retailing mm-hmm. and we kind of need a different way to think about things and this naked wine model was a, to me was a really innovative model that you found by digging around and reading things <laughs> before bed to frustrate your wife. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was all about business model. Like, we're not talking about the wine. We haven't actually talked about the wine. We talked about business model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. all about the those that approach, how you take that framework and you can really apply it to anything. Right. Right. Very powerful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we uh, there's something to be said for, I tell entrepreneurs, think about yourself as an investor in your business, because if oh, it's yes. your business, man, it is your biggest investment in your life, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, and we tell people quite often, we do work with a lot of different small business owners, and, you know, they may be making contributions to a retirement account to diversify themselves outside of their sure. business. But however, if they decided to come to us and said, hey, we don't want to, we want to actually take that money and put it back in our business, we'd say, absolutely. Because you know your business, you understand your business, and mm-hmm. most likely those returns could probably be higher than what we potentially could produce. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a great allo- capital allocation if you really understand it because you're in it day to day. You know the inner outs and, I mean, if you can make more money, absolutely. Right. That and it's very funny because since selling Tara's Way, I, you know, I had all my net worth tied up in my company, like most entrepreneurs do. Mm-hmm. And um, so since then, I, I'm like, I don't like investing in the stock market, you know, because <laughs> I'm used to having so much as good and bad as it is. Like I, you know, I, I knew when it was going to hell and I knew when it was going well, right? And, mm-hmm. But I had some ability, I felt like I had some ability to Im- impact what was going on. Right. And then, then when you're a passive investor, you lose that. It's kind, mm-hmm. of an, it's kind of funny. So let's talk about valuation. So, so all of this leads to having to that final criteria, right? I think it was your final one. It was, right. Um, right. Um, so, so what is important to you when, <clears throat> when you look at the value of a company? So much to talk about yet again. Okay. Of course. So I actually want to start this off with um, something that Tim brought to my attention. Uh, so Tim and Dan have been out there networking like just crazy, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get our LBW's name out there. Mm-hmm. So in their pursuits of doing so, Tim is kind of taking on the space of 
uh, looking at the startup community and, mm-hmm. and what has been produced by, by Madison, what companies are here, because <coughs> it's just amazing how many companies have been started here that are these cash flow generating machines and nobody mm-hmm. talks about them. Right. Isn't that interesting? There, yeah. There's so much talk about technology and I so on and know. so forth. So in uh, Tim's uh, work with some of these these people, he's come across what I would call, it really is stupidity. It really is. But it, it, he's come across entrepreneurs mm-hmm. that they're getting advice from these startup seed investing people saying, hey, listen, if somebody comes to you and says that they're willing to invest, say, $10,000 at a valuation of $1 million, you should let them dictate the mm-hmm. price. And and that just makes me want to slap them upside the head. I know. It makes me want to cry. It does <laughs> because it's wrong. Yeah. It's blatantly wrong. You, I'm not saying that investors shouldn't shouldn't determine valuations. Mm-hmm. They, they should, but they should not dictate what somebody's company is worth to mm-hmm. that somebody. Mm-hmm. So, we firmly believe, and we we want to hold ourselves out there to those entrepreneurs out there who are looking for some insight on what the mm-hmm. valuation of their company is. We can definitely help with that. Mm-hmm. As I said, with the food industry, I don't know the ins and outs of the food industry, but. With this framework that we have, that we utilize, we can definitely help. There are so many factors that go into it. There are quantitative. There are qualitative. It's that key man risk at, at, at hand. So when somebody comes to you and tells you, listen, I want to invest with you, okay, come talk to us and, mm-hmm. and bounce off. That's what we want to be. That's like, like what Tim says. We want to be your sounding board mm-hmm. because we feel that that could be a value to you as the, the founder of your company, to not sell it for a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my world, I'm dealing with these early stage companies, and um, and they may or may not have been profitable for very long, right? Mm-hmm. So so um, historically, when I ran a bigger company, it was like, well, we look at trailing EBITDA, and you know, mm-hmm. we had this sort of mathematical framework, and right. and people people would say, well, you know, for kind of a company like four times EBITDA, trailing EBITDA is probably pretty good. And then the thing about, uh, about younger companies is, well, any company, you're buying future earning potential, right? And right. Y- yeah. these younger companies have ideally are not, have way more potential than, you know, trailing f- four times EBITDA, right? Mm-hmm. And that means that there is such a huge range of possible valuations a Absolutely. lot of time, right? So, so how do you deal with that? Wow, you have such great questions. Uh, so, four times trailing EBITDA as an example. Mm-hmm. What what does that mean? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a multiple, right? It's mm-hmm. four times trailing EBITDA. But what in what is what goes into that multiple? That's where we go back to that calculation. It's, we, uh, it's a discounted cash flow calculation. So that's what I was talking about, taking the future cash flows and discounting them back to the present value. There are a number of inputs that go into that. So, for example, what, are you pers- what do you think your future growth rates are going to be for a five-year to 10-year uh, timetable? And then what do you think your growth rates are going to be after that? Let's assume that your growth rates are, long-term growth rate is going to be based upon inflation, which uh, since the depression has been approximately 3.1%, let's say, 29 to 3.1%. That would be your long-term growth rate. What do you think your fi- uh, five-year uh, growth rate is going to be? Let's say 10%. 
Okay, what is your discount rate? So the discount rate can be also defined as what is your required rate of return as an investor? So I personally like to use 12% across the board. Now, there are various arguments that go into, well, you should really change the discount rate based upon the type of company that you're investing in by does the company have recurring cash flows? Does it have recurring revenues? Are the, the earnings more stable? Do you know where it's gonna, where the money's going to come from in the future? Do you have a, that pretty well-defined idea? But I like to use 12% because it's consistent. Mm-hmm. Where things change is the final part of the puzzle is the margin of safety. What is the margin of safety that you're applying to that overall discounted cash flow analysis? So after all is said and done with that five-year growth rate of 10% that you input, that long-term growth rate of 3.1%, and then applying that 12% discount rate, that is what are those cash flows discounted back to the present at, then you apply that margin of safety of, say, considering how confident you are in your calculations in your inputs in the metrics that you input into that discounted cash flow model, how confident are you in those numbers? And then applying a margin of safety discount rate that is applicable to your level of confidence in your calculations. Mm -hmm. So four times EBITDA is just a bare bones oversimplification of everything that I just said. Right, right. So on the surface, I could input the following variables to reach mm-hmm. four times trailing EBITDA. 0% growth rate, mm-hmm. a 0% long-term growth rate, and 25% discount rate, mm-hmm. and a 0% margin of safety, and I arrive at four times trailing EBITDA. Mm-hmm. So a discount rate of 25% I would say maybe is applicable to a small business that may be balanced upon that key person risk. Mm-hmm. Because if the belly, if the, if the entrepreneur leaves, gets hit by the bus, yeah, what, what do we have, right? So maybe that might make sense mm-hmm. for that. But what if it isn't so much focused on one core person? Mm-hmm. What if the growth rates are maybe 10% for mm-hmm. the next five 10 years? And what if that company then continues to grow at a 3% rate equal to inflation? Mm -hmm. That's where the valuation then may change Mm -hmm. to assuming, uh, even let's assuming a 25% discount rate, the multiple can then change to maybe eight times Mm -hmm. trailing EBITDA. Right. And so... In the case of these younger food companies, um, one of the characteristics of the food industry right now is the customers are really consolidated. So you're growing your food business and, you know, this is like a very possible scenario. You have $250,000 in sales and you're going to go into Target nationally. Um, That could be a a $2 million account, and Mm -hmm. you can't get, like, part of Target. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just get three stores of of something like Target. You're either in or out, right? Mm -hmm. So so one of the things I see in these companies is – this is our version of the hockey stick, right? That you you get like little one store at a time thing. You get two hundred fifty thousand in sales, and now really the next level is you got to go like this. Mm-hmm. So what what does that do to valuation? Well, uh, so that would be like you 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 can apply that to the discounted cash mm-hmm. flow model. You can plot it out such that 
you see a negative 250,000 cash flow in the first year. Mm -hmm. But then in the years following thereafter, because of that investment, so to speak, that negative cash mm -hmm. flow, you're then going to see higher cash flows as a result of those of, the, of that investment in mm -hmm. earnings. Right. So you can apply that to the discounted cash flow model, and it would change the multiple, depending, again, on the growth mm -hmm. rates, so on and so forth. But you can definitely plug that in and come up with an applicable valuation. Right. And one of the things that I've experienced in life about valuation is that people people get really stuck on what the number is. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think my company is worth $2 million, and it's pulled out of the air. It's because they <clears> read <throat> somewhere that some, some company sold for whatever, and right. so they think, gee, my company should be worth that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, people go and do an analysis, and maybe that's not the number. Maybe it's another number. Um, but they still want to talk about a number. And, and I have this sense that, um, that what is really valuable to people is in your, your cash flow analysis, your model here, valuation model, right. is to get people to really understand those, those four variables in there, right, and right. be able to articulate that. When you're negotiating the – so anytime somebody isn't going to make an investment in your company, you have to go through this exercise of figuring out a valuation. And, mm -hmm. and, and being able to defend all of the assumptions about those, mm. right, is mm -hmm. really important to that, those negotiations. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It can be highly. It can be a highly subjective process, not only in the eyes of the investor, the possible the potential investor, but also, as you said, in the eyes of the entrepreneur. So it's funny that you mentioned that. From the entrepreneur, they get that mm -hmm. number in their head. There are a number of things that could possibly go into it, and and principally among them, that's guiding that mm -hmm. is emotion. Mm -hmm. This is that that person's baby. They mm -hmm. put, as you said, you put all of your net worth in the Tara's way. Mm -hmm. I'm, it's it's no different, as you said, for any other founder. I. I could argue that we're pretty much in the same boat with mm -hmm. LBW Wealth Management, that we put everything we have into this. And we're doing so because we have confidence in our abilities to, to retain assets, to, to bring on new clients, so on and so forth. Any other founder in the food industry is probably in the same boat. They have confidence in their ability to sell their product to the local, regional, or national chain if they mm -hmm. get that opportunity. So a lot of emotion can get into that. And, and that is one of, even as, as a portfolio manager for our firm, for our clients' money, I still run into that myself, mm -hmm. into the emotion of I, I do my due diligence on a, on, a, on a particular idea. I put in all of this hard work. This is where we get into what's called anchoring bias. Mm -hmm. We have put in all this work into this idea. We get hung up on this idea. I blog about it in our quarterly commentary. That's really where I... That's my only time that I write during the year. I try That's to. when he lets you out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we just recently wrapped our, yeah. our last, latest quarterly commentary. So if you're, uh -huh. if you're out there, please read it. I, yeah, I do put go. in time into it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, it, we put in all this time and effort into this idea, and I feel like I've done my due diligence. I bought in at a, at a decent price, um, and, and then it tanks. Right. And then I, I think, well, Crap, what did right. I do wrong? Right. And then I go back on my thesis. I review what I put into it. And, and I, then at some point in some occasions, I've realized that I've screwed up and mm -hmm. that I was wrong. Mm -hmm. But the advantage of how we invest is because of that margin of safety that we love to talk about. We are 
purchasing these securities at discounts to what we may deem their value to be, such that if the price does fall, we're always looking out for the downside of our investment. Mm -hmm. So that's the advantage of how we operate. But going back to, to these entrepreneurs, finding that number, that kind of plays into what I was also talking about. What is absolute versus relative value of the mm -hmm. business? So relative value is is extremely uh, pervasive mm -hmm. in today's investment uh, operating environment. Mm -hmm. uh, so relative value is what are other companies within my sector selling at? Mm -hmm. What are they valued at? And then based off of, say, their revenues, let's say they've been typically selling at two times revenue. So therefore, that's how much my company's worth. Right. Well, that's garbage. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's it's based upon the the inputs and the metrics that we spoke about. Mm -hmm. Like, what is your free cash flow? What is your operating profit? What are your gross margins? There's just so much that goes into that that when you mix emotion mm -hmm. and these fundamentals into mm -hmm. the picture – and then you look at the relative values of those around you. It doesn't. It doesn't mix right. So that's why we go back to what is absolute versus relative value. So absolute value is going back to what is your required rate of return. So once you input that into these models, and you can, and then you also, of course, look at the qualitative, mm -hmm. as we talked about. That's where you get to a more focused mm -hmm. value that is based upon the fundamentals. So. Yeah, we look at we look at all those things. We mm -hmm. look at returns on invested capital. One of the factors that we really focus on is what's called incrementals returns on capital. Mm -hmm. So what that means is what is the growth of your returns on invested capital? What is returns on invested capital? That's typically defined as your net operating profit after taxes mm -hmm. divided by your invested capital. What's your invested capital? I mean, it's just it just there's yeah, always, right. There's, there's always an offshoot. There's more. There's more, always, always beneath, more. Something beneath yeah. the surface. Yes. Yeah. And I think, too, Nathaniel brings up a point is that when you just spoke a little bit earlier, you said that, you know, you're investing in your own company, right? Mm -hmm. This is your investment. Mm -hmm. If that company was unrealistic in valuations, imagine if you were just investing in the stock market. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever view your own company different than a publicly traded company? Mm -hmm. It's the same idea. So in all reality, what you have to be is you have to be realistic. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to understand that, yes, you put a lot of effort into this and you put all this hard work. But in all reality, what is the, what is the reality of this valuation? Right. You know, and sometimes it could be higher and sometimes it can be lower. Yeah. One of the things that is is frustrating. So your um, defensively unique competitive advantage comment. <clears throat> yes. In our current food environment where there were, you know, 30 brands in the same category. Mm. Clearly, this issue of what defensively unique is a big issue, right? Mm -hmm. And so I tell people, I, I went to um, Expo West as our big, biggest industry trade show of the year. And when I launched Terra's Way, it was the pit of the Great Recession, right? <laughs> and so it was kind of, it was a super busy show, um, but it was not over-the-top ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This year, it was over-the-top ridiculous. <laughs> Seriously. It's in Anaheim. It's like 10 alliance full <clears throat> of food companies. And they had so many newbies. They had 600 new companies who had never exhibited before want to come. It's $10,000 for us, the basic table. Wow. Okay, so this is not a cheap thing, right? 600 of these. So they took over the convention center in the Hilton and Marriott that abut the um, 
where the expo is, mm-hmm. um, and they put tables in there. And it was jammed with people. Wow. Wow. Uh, it know. was like Comdex used to be. I don't know if you, you probably are old enough to have gone to Comdex either. That was the big IT show um, years okay. ago okay. that would take over Vegas, and it was like all the you know the sands uh. and everybody, and it was legendary because it was so huge. Mm. And this this show, it's probably in part because it's so much more compact, mm. compacted, because it's in one expo center. But they're they've they may have to move it. I mean, it's it's crazy. I'll bet. It's crazy. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, as Tom, as Tim said, that we don't uh, we don't focus on top down investing. We don't. Right. I mean, we 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 are aware of what's going on in the macro, but we don't let it ever dictate how we invest. Mm-hmm. We only utilize it when it is perhaps changing the company or the industry that we're looking at or mm-hmm. or, or investigating. But once you say there and and about the consolidation of the trimming down from 30 different brands to three brands Mm -hmm. that a company is selling, we feel that that is a result of what has happened since the financial crisis, Mm -hmm. which is the – the federal banks out there, the the Federal Reserve, uh, the ECB, uh, the Bank of Japan, China, so on and so forth, they're creating – they're creating money through mm-hmm. quantitative easing, mm-hmm. and everybody's doing it. It's only up until recently that the Federal Reserve has said that they're going to probably start tightening and starting to sell off items Securities. off of their balance right, sheet. Right, right, right. And this has been a decade mm-hmm. in process. I would argue that due to that, interest rates have been artificially suppressed, mm-hmm. and as a result, there's easy money to be had to buy up companies. So mm-hmm. as a result, that's where the consolidation that you referred to earlier is occurring. That's how companies like Kroger was able to buy Roundies, mm-hmm. right? Cops. Right, right. And as a result, look at what I just uh, heard that the cops on Whitney Way, for example, is, is closing, closing yeah. down. Right. They are aggregating their their mm-hmm. their stores within the area and cutting mm-hmm. cutting stores because it's all about Increasing profit margins to the shareholder, right. which is quite interesting how that works out. So, I think that that's only a result of these artificially suppressed interest mm-hmm. rates, and eventually interest rates will rise. Now, I I can't tell you, nobody can tell you when that's mm-hmm. going to happen, but eventually interest rates will rise, and and, and that's why the 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 discount rate that we referred to the twelve percent discount that rate that's why it's. It's not equivalent to the ten-year treasury right. rate, which is two to three percent nowadays. It's it, it, because it's artificially suppressed. That's why we choose to have such a high mm-hmm. discount rate for our investments, as that that threshold that must be that must be cleared, mm-hmm. because we don't trust that interest rates as they are today are accurate for the environment in which we are operating within. Mm -hmm. So eventually, when interest rates rise, those companies that have taken on debt have become leveraged. Typically, they'll try and roll over that debt, and when they do, mm-hmm. they will roll it over at higher interest rates somewhere down the road. So going back to the crisis, what, what was one of the symptoms of it? It was uh, mortgage-backed securities. It was people buying homes that they couldn't really afford mm-hmm. based on their real income. It also happened within the commercial real estate market. So when the commercial real estate market also started to uh, totter, uh, is that the right word? Totter? Uh, Teeter totter. Yeah. Teeter totter. Something like that. Well, it's particularly bad for a building to totter. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, 
commercial real estate companies right. that uh, started to uh, waver mm-hmm. as as uh, their debt actually became due during that time period between 06 and 08 because the Fed decided to cut interest rates to the rates that they did, the corporate uh, the corporate debt market responded and lowered interest rates in kind, mm-hmm. and therefore those companies were able to roll over their what were probably around 5 to 7, maybe as high as 10% interest rates. They were able to roll it over to 4 to 5% mm-hmm. corporate bond rates and corporate debt rates, mm-hmm. and, and that's just absolutely insane. So now some of those have actually started to come due, and it's not too bad right now because interest rates are still artificially mm-hmm. low. But when interest rates do rise and then they do attempt to roll over their debt, that's just one example, mm-hmm. commercial real estate. There are other companies out there that have taken on extreme amounts of debt that their cash flows cannot support the interest expenses and cannot support the payment of those debts somewhere mm-hmm. down the line. And eventually, it'll come back and blow up in their faces. One example of that has actually been in the last two years, since uh, late 2014, mm-hmm. commodity companies. Right. Especially the the oil and mm-hmm. gas-producing companies. They are actually being floated right now by the big banks that lended them the money in the first place. Mm-hmm. They are choosing to extend their loan terms for these companies because the banks don't want it to show that they have right, defaulted after, right loans. after all these. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because then it goes back to their investors saying, well, what the hell are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh-oh, we have right. all this, the default, default right. rate is, is raising, raising. Right, right. It's crazy. It's crazy. So um, that, you know, as I listen to you, I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to get depressed. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, no, seriously, with the with food, to, for me to watch what's going on, I have enough, you know, that the 600 young companies is exciting, new brands at the big show. But it's mm. also a bit terrifying because it's too much. Like the retailers can't, can't take on all these new brands. It's exactly. Just, and the brands aren't capitalized sufficiently to support mm-hmm. in that in this environment in particular and so sounds like a shakeout phase is sounds like soon. a shakeout phase is coming and mm-hmm. so um yeah it's kind of a shift in the in the environment at the same time that consumers are more interested than ever in local food and mm-hmm. knowing where their food came from and and you know looking at big established brands and saying they're irrelevant to me like you know, like, what I don't know, McDonald's is irrelevant to my kids. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally irrelevant. And mm. so what do you do? It used to be this huge brand, and mm. there's lots of that going on. Yes, the ease of, of procuring that food uh, yeah. back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. It yeah. made life real simple. Yeah. So your 12% is kind of a hurdle rate for you, right? Correct. Okay. So uh, given that that's your hurdle rate at the moment, is it? I, I bet you're doing a lot of research and not finding a lot of things to invest in. That Am is I correct. right? Yeah. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. We, um, For example, some of the clients that we onboarded in the November, December timeframe of 16, mm-hmm. I haven't fully invested their, their funds mm-hmm. in the portions of those those portfolios that I am responsible for because I haven't been able to find suitable Mm -hmm. opportunities for them. Mm -hmm. So we're comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, you are managing people's people's, um, money. And um, I I tell people on the business side, the entrepreneur side, Mm. that um, this is a good example. There is money out there, Mm. right? And I see this a lot. There is money out there looking for looking for things to invest in that make sense. Um, but there's 
a lot of things that don't make sense. There's a lot of um, frothy kind of stuff going on. Yes. And and so, um, but there's money to be had to for businesses that do the work. And the work is, I in my in my estimation, is a lot around the business model, what I call business model stuff. So, in your list of things, mm. it's you know, if you don't have those first two defensible, unique, and, and a business model, you, you can't get down to the money, right? You, yeah, you right. will never, it'll ne- you'll die in your filter in the beginning, right? Yep. Yeah. You have to have, uh, speaking as, as new business owners in the last two years or so, Yeah. we, we can relate in that it, this is kind of factored into that. This is a, mm-hmm. a factor in addition to what we look for in investments in that, these entrepreneurs, you have to be sufficiently capitalized in some form at terms that are reasonable to you. Because if you're being crushed by a high interest rate for Mm -hmm. a loan, then you will go under eventually. Mm -hmm. You have to have a solid foundation to build upon Mm -hmm. in terms of, as you state, what are the economics of your business model? Mm -hmm. Is it defensible? Is it is it somehow unique to your competitors? How so? Can it be breached? Okay, if it can be breached, how long, how far out will mm-hmm. it take to be breached? Because if you if your company has high returns on invested capital, in practice and also in theory, the laws of economics dictate that competitors will swarm mm-hmm. to your t- what your company is doing, and thereby your returns will thereby lower over time. The question is, how long can you last? Mm-hmm. So we, that kind of builds upon what, what you talked about. But really, it kind of goes back to what we like to call a buffer. It goes back to the margin of safety. How much cash, how much of a buffer do you have on hand to sufficiently capitalize your company for the ebbs and flows mm-hmm. that may go on for the next Five, maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I think as well, I mean, even like Nathaniel said, talking about being business owners ourselves is that, we, especially with entrepreneurs, they have a great idea. They may be have a fantastic idea when it comes to a certain land. They have a very specific expertise. But when you're a business owner, you have two jobs. You have what you're good at, and then you have being a business owner. Mm-hmm. And understanding those models, that business model, you really have to be in tune with how you're doing it, what's going forward, and not just what you're good at, which may be farming, maybe mm-hmm. production, however that may be. You really have to see it on a holistic scale. And if you don't, that will eat you up because it's those that, it's that pennies and dimes that are going to kill you in the end, mm-hmm. right? And you're just not paying attention to it because that's not really what you yeah, like to do. You're yeah. really focused on a certain thing. And so that may be bringing in a partner that wants to focus on that mm. or you do it yourself or however you may choose, but you have to understand the business economics. And if you don't, you will fail. Right, eventually. right. And it, it's hard to zoom out of it's like you it have is, to you have tough. to zoom mm. up and look down on your own business, yep. which is like looking down on yourself, right? Mm-hmm. When you're an entrepreneur and it, it's a hard out of body oh, experience. It, it, can yeah. be, it can it can be breaking to some people to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to actually know. look at themselves from an uh, an objective point of view and say 
damn, I'm not I, so I good this at wrong. this. Yeah. I got to go back to the, the writing board. And, yeah. and looking, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out and understanding what do you really want to do with a business? Do mm. you Is it a strategic sell situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Am I looking to get Pepsi-Cola to buy me out? Or is this something that I want to build out and be a Pepsi-Cola one day? Mm-hmm. And and having that long-term projection, but at the same time you have to manage your short-term expectations because if you don't do that, you can't get to the long-term. And yep. And so on and so forth. Right, right. It's a funny thing about owning a business. And I, I don't think you can tell people, you can't, like, I, I don't know, it, unless you've owned your own business, I don't think you can quite understand the whole dynamics of this, yeah. right? And that, that is true. Yeah. Experience is, yeah, experience is key. Is key, yeah. The, it's a conceptually knowing it is one, or reading about it is one thing, but mm. um, the whole um you know, you brought up the issue of emotion, your emotional relationship to your business. Mm. It's like, why? You know, I ran a business before. I get, I know how to run a business. And then <laughs> it's your business? Holy yep. cow. It's totally different. It's totally different baby. ball of wax. Yeah. 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 And, yeah, that emotional quotient isn't a thing I would always say, right? Right. How do you remove that? And right. How do you be objective? Right. That, that is yourself. one of our greatest strengths is that we, I, I think I have a decent IQ. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, a genius or anything like that, mm-hmm. but he's being, he's being modest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I have a high emotional quotient, a high EQ, mm-hmm. which I, we feel is essential to do in investing in, in how we invest. Mm-hmm. And we could argue also within private equity investing mm-hmm. as well. You have to have the emotional ability to withdraw yourself from the equation and to objectively, rationally mm-hmm. view it. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't do that, then you cannot adapt. And and we feel that adaptation is a part of the equation. Which And even if you want to took an example of Amazon, that's what I would say Amazon, Jeff Bezos, has done mm-hmm. well from an aspect of they've tried things, and if they don't work, they shut it down. Right, it's fail n- fast forward. Yeah, right. right. And, yeah. and, and they, don't, they don't contribute all of their capital to mm, a particular right. idea. Exactly. They, they try it out, they pile it, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't work, then they move on. Right, right. That, yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see. So, so right now um, my retail food clients are complaining about competition, right? There, mm. There's more stores, there's more options, and um, and – Everybody's still trying to make online food sales work. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and Amazon, I tell people Amazon has not been able to figure this out. Mm-hmm. I don't know who can. And now yep. they want to open stores. They're talking about opening like a lot of retail yeah. grocery stores. And there we're like, it's distribution. Oh, it, yeah, it's yeah. distribution again. And we're like, yep. holy cow. It, so it's really it's an interesting dynamic time for mm-hmm. food. So your your adaptation resilience, holy cow! It, yeah, yep. it's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be an interesting time. Well, and as much as you know, technology it's it's it just cuts so much transaction costs out of right. you know. In technology, most people think about it as like Snapchat, right? Mm-hmm. But technology is integrated now into day to day business when it comes to farming, if it comes to manufacturing where it's making things more applicable or easier to get to stores, right? That's mm-hmm. what Amazon's done, is they've utilized technology in day-to-day life and has mm-hmm. maximized it, made it more efficient and less cost-effective. And so, I mean, if you're not thinking that way, 
um, it's happening regardless if you want right. it to or not. Right. Um, I, I'm, you know, when I was a kid, The Jetsons was a TV show when I was a kid. And I'm like increasingly thinking I, it would be really fun to dredge out old Jetsons. Yeah. It's still a classic. I remember growing up with those. Don't two. you yeah. think? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's like a hoot. But like, okay, so the drone is going to come and deliver my groceries <laughs> and stuff. I'm like, I don't know if it was yeah. in The Jetsons, but it could have been. Right. It should have been in there right. if we didn't. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. Yeah. Is there anything else about this whole um, conversation about valuation and business model and um, that you guys would like to share, or have we pretty much talked it through? I think it's been really, really useful for people. I, I suppose I would sum it up with that we highly suggest that you apply independent thought, critical thought to whatever problem that you may come across in your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, be rational. Take emotion out of the equation. As much as possible. Mm-hmm. Understand the risk versus the reward. Never stop learning. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah, yeah, sum it up for me. Well. Yeah. I mean, and my biggest piece, especially going back to you're asking an investor going and approaching a business owner and maybe trying to have that negotiation of potential capital to do, you know, definite capital raises, is that if you're usually come with a evaluation that you have in your head that's realistic, most of the time, I would say if you have a good investor, they'll probably take it, mm-hmm. right? Because they understand it too. So it's not, and yeah, they may have some subjectivity to it, um, but even, I guess, if you look at, if you want to go back to Warren Buffett, I mean, he put in the newspaper, you give me you know, 24 hours and I'll come up and I'll come with a valuation and I'll give it to you because what most investors are looking for are those future earnings, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, I will pay a realistic price today because mm-hmm. I can understand the economics going forward. Right. Um, and, and so it's just being realistic with yourself and taking out the emotions and getting back to yeah. what is this really worth? And it may not be worth as much as you think. Right. Um, and and it will always be a negotiation and you're never um, in a negotiation. You always want to have, you know, there's starting point bias in a negotiation yeah, always, right? Yeah. So you want to come with a valuation. It's, it's, right. Yeah. And um, I guess – you're absolutely right to focus on that because, uh, as you said, I think there is this mentality that let the lead investor set the terms mm-hmm. and let the lead investor tell you what your company is worth. And, I, yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I would think, too, aligning yourself with the appropriate investor as well, especially yeah. with startups. Is it a strategic partner? Is it not? Are they going to come in and help you out in different ways? What? What? I mean, their benefit might be different um, contacts they have to get you into certain distribution systems or – so there's a little bit probably more than just um, the number, right, mm-hmm. and who you're going to invest with. And if they come in and they're giving – it's okay to say no. Oh, right. yes. That's that's extremely important to be able right. to know when to walk away, yeah. to, to understand that it's okay to walk away because there right. are other fish out in the sea that may be willing to invest in your company mm-hmm. at the terms that you're – thinking about right. willing to give it to them, yeah. Yeah, and and have if you get an offer like that, run it by somebody else because I've yes. had yeah. many examples where people have run things by me and I will look at it and say, okay, this person clearly invested in tech in the past because <laughs> they have a bunch of things in there that are typical for tech, but if you let this happen, you will lose control of your company in three years because you're not gonna achieve those hurdles that are in there. Yep. Yeah. And and it's in language and it's structured in ways that the entrepreneur had no idea that mm. that would be the result of signing that, right? Yeah, um, right. 
Talk, yeah. to, talk to someone talk with to the knowledge, people. maybe mm-hmm. maybe a lawyer. Don't be afraid to to spend the money on a lawyer who can tell you if mm-hmm. this is in your best interest because what is the uh, what is the return on that cost to mm-hmm. you could be something phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up a good point as well, and I think Nathaniel probably just hit on a little bit, is that each industry is different. So mm-hmm. evaluating it, I mean, doing valuations on companies is most likely industry specific because like you said there's certain components to certain companies that make more sense than like tech right right and and you have to make sure that you're you're looking at it appropriately mm-hmm. not doing a relative valuation from tech to you know consumer goods right yeah. and right. and that just that can cause some probably valuation differences you've probably mm-hmm. s- seen spot on yeah yeah, yeah. so well, thanks so much for coming. It's been great, and I look forward to talking further in the future. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate it. Thank you so thanks much. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.